1: Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts.
0: Abraham Lincoln famously, whenever he was like really mad at a subordinate, like you know, one of the generals in the Civil War, he would write them like just a really nasty letter. Like he would just this is what you're doing wrong. This is, you know, he he would write everything that he wanted to say and then he'd put that letter in an envelope and then put it in his drawer and then wait, you know, a day or a week. And then most of the time he wouldn't send it. Courage calls to each of us. Will we answer? Or maybe that's too much. Can we get better at answering? Can we step up more times than we step back? Let's start there.
1: I like that a lot. Like that. Okay, well that's not so bad. Well said. Uh, how do we get more courageous so that we answer that call more often?
0: Well, I think the more you can make it a habit, right? In, in the same way that exercise, like this morning, uh, obviously I like, don't want to work out, but <laughs> I decided to, and so I did, right? Um, and then I remember standing in the shower and it was nice and warm. And then when you crank that handle, you know to the cold part even if it's just for a few seconds i think one of the things you're doing is like reminding yourself who's in charge and who is in charge i'd like to think the courageous side of me is in charge like the side that does the hard thing the side the, the 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 side that does the uncomfortable thing this the side the that the conscious side can override the emotional side or vice versa depending on what it is right but it Seneca talks about the reason to treat the body rigorously so that it's not disobedient to the mind, which I love. I think about that all wow. the time. You know, like who that's who's in charge, right? Like you or your desire to be comfortable, to be well liked, uh, to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. Like who's in charge? And I think if you think about courage as like very rarely the easy way, and almost always the harder way, um, you can build that as a muscle. Like, I do the harder thing. I don't read the comments, right? Like, I say what I think is true, and I don't flinch, you know, is this gonna be bad for me or not? Like, uh, that doesn't mean you go around half cocked, but like, I, I don't flinch from stuff, I do that hard thing to me that's the habit that we're trying to build and i think one of the ways we do that bring this full circle is by not just studying history but by like integrating those people into your lives like what would they do here like what tradition are you an heir to um there's a great poem by longfellow where he talks about um that uh, the li- he says, the lives of all great men remind us we can make our lives sublime. And then he says, um, and then in doing that, we can leave behind us footprints in the sands of time that for another person, he says, sailing over life's solemn main can take heart from. Mm. Right. So I think I've, if you think about it as this like s- sort of series of like this unending procession of. Torches like that where one torch is lighting another is lighting another is lighting another and that you 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 are a descendant uh literally or figuratively of people who have endured like unimaginable difficulties and persevered through it um and so can you and in so doing you are reassuring the people come from you, again, literally or figuratively, that uh, they also have what it takes.
1: Mm. Talk to me about the idea of burning the white flag.
0: Well, I think when you look at a lot of courageous acts, whether it's, you know, sort of resistance in war or, you know, somebody who, you know, enacted some political change or whatever, there was this sort of tenacious refusal to surrender, like... um, Seneca talks again, quote Seneca He says, like, if they can force you to do it, you don't know how to die. Whoa. Meaning that like, uh, you can lose, but quitting is a choice. I think, uh, have you read old man in the sea by Hemingway? No, it's a beautiful, very short book, but, um, you know, he says a man can be defeated, but not destroyed. Or is it, Destroyed it, not defeated. But the, the point is, those are not the same thing, mm. right? And that the decision to quit, the decision to give up, the decision to concede, that's ultimately a power that you always have. Um, again, you can, you're going to end up on the losing side. That, that happens. Um, but you decide if that's it.
1: I think that might even be the... That idea was when you brought up Churchill talking to his daughter-in-law, because if I remember right, the quote about there's nothing stopping you from going into the kitchen and getting a butcher's knife and taking a few of these bastards with you, I'm not saying that they can't eventually beat you, just that you don't ever have to give up or something like that.
0: I think that's right.
1: I think that's right. Although there is another
0: great Churchill quote quote where he says, never, ever, 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 ever give in. He says, except in matters of taste and good sense, or in, in- in except in matters of honor or good sense so are there sometimes where it makes sense to concede yeah that is
1: my all-time favorite quote i fucking love that so much
0: it's so good i mean he just walked into a school of boys and just you're supposed to give like a 30 minute address <laughs> and that's what he said
1: <laughs> it's amazing have you seen the movie our finest hour uh yeah yeah oh god i love this so much look he there's no doubt that he's a complex figure who did also dumb shit yeah but to think, and in fact, this is an idea that comes up in the book over and over and over again, and is very inspiring to me, which is this idea of one person showing courage can become a, a majority. Yes, and that courage is
0: contagious, as they say.
1: Yes, give me more about that. Well, there's a quote,
0: it's attributed to Andrew Jackson. We don't know if he actually said it, but he said, um, uh, one man with courage makes a majority. And I don't know if you, there's like a viral video of like some guy at like a concert, and uh, no, everyone's sitting in the grass, and he just starts dancing. And then, like, suddenly more and more. Have you seen this one? And, like, suddenly I the, haven't whole, seen the whole crowd one. is dancing. But it's a, it's a nice metaphor for what we're talking about. Mm. And de Gaulle was asked this uh, towards the end of his life. Um, you know, people think, like, for instance, the French resistance. Everyone was in the French resistance. Like, the Nazis overran France and 5% of the population resisted. Whoa, 5%. So it's not just like, oh, hey, like a new political party came and uh, like we didn't really like it. But like, no, like the worst cause in human history takes over your country. And only five percent of people were like, I object. Right. Like people were like, I don't like this. But wow. only five percent of people, maybe less actively participate in the resistance. Now, of course, retroactively, everyone says we were with you. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. That's not how it was. But de Gaulle was asked, you know, uh, is it. Isn't it true that you were always in a minority in everything you did? And he said, Yes, but I always believed that someday that would cease to be so. And you think about this the first video that you post, uh, first book that I write, the first time anyone does anything creatively, financially, uh, entrepreneurially, nobody thought it would work, right? Like you were the only one that believed in it, or else they would have done it, right? Like, and sure, maybe five people, but the point is the vast majority of people thought it was either thought it was a bad idea or couldn't even care, muster up enough care to tell you it was a bad idea. Like they were just ignorant of your entire existence, right? So you you are in a fundamental minority when you start anything and you have to have this belief. And again, we talk about the courageousness of earnestness. You have to have a belief that one day that will cease to be so. Um, you know, when I... So, my first book about stoicism, I'd written two successful marketing books, <clears throat> and my publisher told me after that,, um, you know, they were not interested in what became the obstacles of the way, really at all. They offered me half what I got paid for my first book for what was my third book, The Obstacles wow. of the way, less than half. Um, and I remember my editor said something like, uh, I asked her like this like last year, and she said, you know, we were just hoping you would get this out of your system and <laughs> go back to doing what we thought you should be doing. Right. And, you know, I get it. Like in retrospect, like obscure books about, or, uh, books about an ancient obscure school of philosophy are not like the most sexy, ex- but that's what I wanted to do. And more importantly, I had seen what it had done for me and I believed that it would be bigger than they thought it would be. But there was a moment where that was not empirically <laughs> you know, evident. And you know, it, took, it, took, uh, it didn't hit The Obstacle's Way. It hit no bestseller list when it came out. Uh, and it did not hit any bestseller list, although it sold consistently, did not hit a single bestseller list for the first six years that it was Whoa. out in the world. Um, and it chugged along until eventually it hit number one. And when it hit number one, of course, everyone said, well, obviously, (laughs) you know, this is a popular school of ancient philosophy. Like, of course, you know. Right. Um, And I think anyone that's unearthed anything or popularized anything or invented anything new experiences that. Like, everyone tells you it's a bad idea until you definitively prove it was a good idea. And then the curse is that it looks like it was obvious all along.
1: You actually give an example of that in the book. Um, Oh, God. Which person? It was the Kennedys and uh, the Shriver, I think. I forget that guy's first name. Yeah. In
0: 1960, Martin Luther King is arrested for integrating a restaurant in Georgia. And this is like not like, oh, he was just arrested and he was going to be treated well in jail. Like it was very real there was a very real threat that he would be lynched or murdered in police custody and even if he wasn't he was sentenced to four months on a chain gang um, which again was likely a pretext for him to be (laughs) killed while escaping Mm. or lynched or you know mysteriously disappear um and so coretta scott king you want to talk about courage she's raising two children she's pregnant with her third she says i'm gonna call Kennedy and Nixon, the two guys running for president. I'm going to call the next president of the United States and see if they can't intervene to help my husband. And Nixon, going back to the Roosevelt thing we were talking about, Nixon says, I don't want to get involved. Uh, It's going to be bad for me politically. When I'm president, I'll be in a position to help you. Um, And the worst part about it is that he was actually friends with Martin Luther King. He knew him personally. They'd socialized. uh, He'd worked with him when Nixon ran Eisenhower's civil rights Uh, uh, projects and but in the moment of truth he wasn't there and Kennedy um, was advised by people looking at the same political calculation to also not get involved except his brother-in-law says no man you got to do this like it's not just the right thing it's like the only thing like you can't let this the civil rights leader of our time you know be murdered in a Georgia prison Again, what good is becoming president if you can't do this? And so uh, Kennedy and his brother, Robert F. Kennedy, get involved. Uh, They call the judge. They call the governor. They pull some strings and they get King released. Uh, Basically, they put enough attention on it that it was no longer possible for something bad to happen in the shadows. In any case, King gets out. He's uh, devastated that his friend betrayed him and, you know, impressed that the balls on Kennedy... That that hey, this isn't just some like rich kid from Boston uh, with you know powerful parents. Uh, This is like a guy with real courage and real commitment to to you know the ideals of what America is supposed to stand for. And so Kennedy, uh, so Ken King comes out and says like, this is what John F. Kennedy does for me. And uh, John F. Kennedy wins the presidency by like thirty thousand votes, um, almost entirely due to the switch of black turnout most in 1960 actually the republican party was the party of uh, african americans not the democratic party and so it flips uh and he wins the presidency so when we talk about courage it's like first off it's not always going to be obvious people are going to be telling you it's precisely the wrong thing to do Mm -hmm. um but then also just like a few seconds of courage can change not just the course of your life talking about the great man of history theory it can change the course of an entire society
1: do i remember i also that people told shriver dude don't this is not advice you want to give yeah because if he feels pressured by you he's gonna never want to hear from you again and you'll be iced out of the campaign and if he ends up taking your advice everyone's gonna forget that you just took this big risk
0: well this is how all bureaucracies function basically
1: all organizations where you know
0: you don't people don't have real skin in the game it's all downside and no upside to, to to speak up, right? If you if you push for the risk and it doesn't work, you're the idiot mm-hmm. who screwed it all up and you get fired. And and if it works out, of course you were right. It was obvious and here's your pat on the back. You did your job. You know? Yep. And so he 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 had to call in, he called in his his he, he basically said, look, I'm family, I'm calling in my one chip, right? Like you have to do, he put it all on the line. And uh, again, yeah, who remembers it? Nobody, Uh, you got no credit for it. Kennedy gets the credit. Um, Kennedy became president, right? He got all of it. Um, And that is, I think another important sort of, you know, I talk about in the book, I talk about courage is this like sort of rare gem you hold up in different angles produce different sort of reflections but like we often think of the courageous president the courageous ceo the courageous whistleblower whatever but we also often forget the sort of ordinary courage of the people who spoke up inside of an organization Mm. people who put forth this little policy or made this little tweak or pocketed this piece of paper to prevent some bad thing from happening like courage is not always sexy and obvious and it's not you know riding a galloping horse you know or it's not flashed uh, across the headlines it's, it can often be very unsung as well
1: yeah it's there's a an interesting quote from steve jobs in the book where he says one way that we remember who we are is when we remind ourselves of who our heroes are which i thought was really interesting i'm curious who are your heroes
0: yeah i think what what jobs is talking about is the same thing i'm talking about in how i approach things and what i try to do in my books which is like who whose standard are you trying to live up to like whose shadow are you walking in who are you who are you trying not to let down and if you think about those and you think about who those are for apple you know they have the famous sort of misfits commercial um the weird ones or whatever it is um you know who are those people for you and can you make them real to you? And again, thinking about like who your heroes are is really clarifying. I think I have a, obviously I have a bunch of ancient heroes. Of course, uh, the Stoics being the ones I talk about the most. And you know, I return to the same characters in the books quite often. That's something I have to sometimes be careful with. I'm fascinated by Ulysses S. Grant, Abraham Lincoln. Florence Nightingale was someone I'd been wanting to write about for a long time and hadn't been able to. Um, But as far as living, I don't, I always feel weird
1: doing the living one because I'm all for dead. Like who are some of your favorite Stoics and why?
0: Well, so
1: what's fascinating
0: to me about Stoicism is the spectrum on which the Stoics exist. So you have Epictetus, born a slave you have Marcus Aurelius who's born into privilege and then is chosen to be emperor and so you have extreme adversity and extreme advantage and yet they both sort of play the hand that fate's that fate deals them with such sort of grace virtue and self-control and wisdom that I just I love that because the reality is we're somewhere in the middle of that spectrum almost all of us right um we're unlikely to lead the free world we're unlikely to be thrown into chains but we're either dealing with too much or not enough of something and how do you sort of stand up to that to me is what it's all all about so i i what i love about stoicism and why i found it just so fulfilling to write about is like they were real people like not academics not uh even 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 seneca the sort of the probably the greatest writer of the stoics is like the second most powerful man in rome and he's a playwright like on the side like he's 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 in the arena you know like doing doing the work Mm. and i i think ideas that don't have that component it doesn't really matter to me how brilliant they are uh They haven't been tested and i think what i take from the stoics is like they've been tested in every imaginable way in context
1: now somebody that has gotten into your universe and i he wrote something on the cover of your book and i know wrote you an email that you have hung on your wall that you take as a reminder i would assume daily yeah is general mattis that would definitely be a living hero for me, for sure. I wondered about that. And how did you guys connect? Um, through Stephen Pressfield. Interesting. What is it about Mattis, who I find fascinating, that you uh, think is worthy of that kind of praise?
0: Well, I mean, anyone that works in public service for decades, you know, I think uh, is worthy of our sort of respect and gratitude. Uh, particularly something like the Marines, you know, serving actively in combat and all different positions of leadership. But I think, you know, anyone that lives by a code kind of seems like apart from the rest of us because they're, they're, there's something really difficult. It's like we know how difficult that is and we know how challenging it is and we know that it's it's we know they could get away with less. Right, so I, I always admire someone, even when I disagree with them, I really admire people who live by a code. Like politically, so many things I might disagree with, let say a John McCain. But clearly this is a man who lives by a code, has real skin in the game pertaining to that code, and under pressure at various times in his life, in some cases unimaginable pressure, like being a prisoner of war, um, He stuck to the code when again, he didn't have to. And so I admire people, and I try to follow in my own small way in the footsteps of people who have stuck with that code even when it's cost them. So Mattis famously resigns on principle um, when uh, when the US pulls out of Syria, um, has also though, uh, believes that, you know, basically you don't criticize sitting presidents. So even though he disagreed vehemently with the president who he resigned, said nothing critical. Uh, And again, I I just I I just admire someone who lives by code. But he and I were emailing and um, we're talking about something that had just happened in the world. I forget what it was specifically, but some major event. And I was sort of down on it. And I was pointing out, um, you know, I was i was sort of asking, like, is this this as bad as I think it is? And he was like, yeah, (laughs) it's it's like it's worse. Right. but he, but he said something reassuring. He said, you know, sometimes it's darkest before the dawn. And then uh, gave me some sort of reassurance. And I said, like, well, if you're saying that and you've seen some like you've seen some of the worst things that human beings do to each other, which is what war is. And you still have hope. I was like, what excuse do I have? And he just said, hold the line, which is sort of like the mantra that he has sort of introduced. Uh, he's given a couple famous speeches about it. Um, and it's sort of like that's his thing. It's his hold the line, and it's a great it's a great little mantra because I think it. What is the line, right? I think the line is virtue. Like, what is what does your oath tell you to do? What does your conscience tell you to do? What does your uh, professional obligation tell you to do? Um, what does virtue tell you to do? And I think that's what he was saying. It's like doesn't matter what's happening in the outside world. Doesn't matter if this is you know. I think what he was joking. He was like, it's always darkest before the dawn um but uh sometimes it just stays dark or something like that right like he wasn't saying like it's all sunshine and roses it's all going to be good what he was saying is like could be great could be horrible
1: mm. but
0: like you know what your job is
1: how often do you think about that moment for you very specifically like do you have a codified set of so i think of my mind as a, a Pachenko ball machine if okay. you know what those look like yeah. right you drop the ball on the top it bounces around over a lot of things and those things that it's bouncing on is my um, the code that I live by, right? My sure. belief system. Yeah. So I take something negative, uh, or you know, there's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Sure, so sure. it's like, and I put it through all of that so that I get a, a resulting outcome that is useful. Yeah. which Is how I think of it. Do you spend a lot of time building something like that?
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, we're not robots, so we can't like, okay, I'm not going to react. This is like an intuitive, almost an unconscious process, right? and And so you're sort of you're trying to you're trying to put all this information in there uh, you're trying to 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 sort of put in those those little points that the thing is bouncing around on on the way down as a way of sort of slowing down the process. I think most people, your average person who who doesn't work on themselves, who's not reading, who doesn't care about any of this they're just they're, they're the time between stimulus and response is like nothing right and the the more you work on it, the more you practice the more. You're able to question your own thoughts, it's all what is about that, slowing
1: it down. What does that practice process look like? Like, How do you practice that?
0: That's a good question. I mean, it, it'd be like, how do they practice uh, swinging a bat in baseball? I mean, they just swing it a lot, and they, they watch film of themselves, so they're stepping back and evaluating things after they happen. They're looking for cues, they're, they're, they've got other people around them who are giving them feedback. I think it's about a sort of cultivating an awareness and a process of continual reflection on the data that your life is creating all the time.
1: Do you think most people do that though?
0: No, of course not. That's why it's <laughs> such a huge competitive edge to start working on that. Do you know what I mean? And, yes. and the earlier you start working on it, the sooner you're going to start to see results, but the more those results are going to compound over time. There's nothing in, let's say, stoic philosophy where we're saying that, you know, the the idea that there's no good or bad, there's just the interpretation that we have on things. So I first learned that when I was 19 years old. I'm sitting in my apartment in college, and I read this book, and some person 2,000 years ago said that to me. So that was the first time I encountered it intellectually. A week later, that would have only a minuscule impact on my life. But every, every time I've thought about it, every time I've studied it, every time I've tried to reflect on how in retrospect I could have done that better I've accumulated slightly more knowledge, more knowledge more appreciation more set more sense of that the truth of that and and the I've gotten better and better at it I, I might be only twenty percent better at it now but I'm hoping that at 70 uh, that that return will compound not unlike my retirement savings right like you're thinking about this and working on it and writing about it and talking to other people about it and, and trying to evaluate your own behavior and then it's just this process of, of reflection and minuscule improvement as you go. You're not trying to get to perfection right now, you're just trying to get a little bit better than you were yesterday or an hour ago. Do you read Ray Dalio's Principles? I have not read it, oh, but i 've heard amazing things about it.
1: I, I, know his, I know I know a
0: bunch <laughs> of the principles, but his practice is similar right he 's like we 're recording all our meetings we 're getting feedback from people in the office about how you 're doing. One of my favorite stories about that uh, Pete Carroll, the coach of the Seattle Seahawks, one of the best coaches in the NFL, he was talking about how you know coaches are constantly filming their players and they 're forcing the players to break. Uh, to break down game film, they're ruthless. Like it's like you could have a great game, and then the next day you're you're back in the practice facility, mm. and you know the receivers coach is telling you what a horrible game you had and all the opportunities that you've blown. And, and so uh, obviously that's that's what makes these guys so great. And Coach Carroll was saying, like, I realize I don't do that to the coaches. Like, the coaches never experienced that. And so he started filming his coaches, and he would he would force them at the beginning of the season to look back at all the times that they blew it, right? That they lost their temper or that they missed something. and And so I try to do that in my own life. I mean, one of the ways that I, you know, authors aren't supposed to read their own reviews, for instance. One of the reasons that I read most of the Amazon reviews, let's say, on my books is that I want to get feedback from people. So I'm not reading them to feel like I'm awesome or to, to sort of whip myself, but I, I want to see what people are responding to and I want to get unsolicited feedback on, on the writing. I have a, a, a filter that I put that information through, but I'm looking for as much feedback as I can about the things that I do so that I can incorporate that data and, and get better.
1: So th- this is like my life's obsession, this okay. moment right here. So one, I want to know what that filter is, and sure. we'll get to that in a second. But so w- you're you're incredibly successful, right? You've got your own company. It's doing well, working with the biggest companies ever. You're a multiple-time best-selling author, and you have perennial sellers in the mix as well, which is sell, 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 sell. Why the hell do you subject yourself to the self-flagellation of an Amazon review? Like what? What is that about?
0: Well, it's not self-flagellation, so you have to make that distinction. How do you
1: prime yourself mentally for it not to become self-flagellation?
0: I can't change what happened. So I'm looking for this feedback for tips and information that can help me improve so that that person who, let's say they didn't like what I did, so that I can not let that happen again. They'd say, you know, Ryan, uh, I really like this book, but I can't let my son read it because he uses the F word a lot. And so it was like, okay, so some people don't like cursing. And then I noticed as I went through the, the positive reviews, no one ever said, I really like how Ryan curses a lot. <laughs> so this, was a, this wasn't something that was important to me, right? And here it was having a negative impact on some of the readers. And then let's say a marginal to no impact, no positive impact to the readers who were enjoying it. So to me, that's a pretty easy data point to go like, okay, in some cases... I think I need to drop an F-bomb here to catch people's attention, right? And I can see that when I talk. If the audience is, you know, sort of drifting a little bit, I can, call, I can use it, you know. Um, but there's no reason for me to do this in my... And so in, in The Daily Stoic, there, the, there's no curse words. And that was an improvement, I think, that made the book better. And I got that by
1: going through this process. That makes a lot of sense. Now, yeah. now talk to me, you said you have like an installed filter that you use to know what to listen to and what not to listen to.
0: Yeah, look at the feedback you're getting and then remember what you were trying to do. For instance, uh, I'll, I'll get a criticism uh, from, let's call them stoic fundamentalists. Right, people are really sort of nerds about philosophy um, who will say, you know, Ryan, um, you know, Ryan doesn't add anything new, he's just taking stoic principles and illustrating them with stories, right? So that'll be one criticism. Or they'll, so they'll say, you should read the originals, don't read Ryan's book. Or other people will say, um, you know, Ryan is taking these timeless, virtuous principles and then illustrating them with famous, successful people and, you know, that sort of cheapens it or, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's not what stoicism is about, let's say. Well, in both cases, I was explicitly trying to do the thing they were criticizing me for, right? So I say in the book, if you're really interested in Stoicism, go read the ancient Stoic texts. I cannot do better than them. What I was writing, uh, The Obstacles is the Way and Ego is the Enemy, is for people who don't have time or interest in ancient philosophy, but are trying to improve their life in some way. So I'm trying to meet them where they are. So when someone says that I didn't do this thing, that I explicitly wasn't trying to do, my filter is going, okay, this person shouldn't have read the book. This wasn't for them. I don't need to take this personally, right? If you're trying to be everything for everyone and you read feedback, you're just gonna get more lost because some one person's gonna say this and another person's gonna say that. But if you know, here's exactly what I was trying to accomplish and here's what that success looks like, then you can, you can filter this information and go, okay, is this person's advice getting me closer to where I wanna get or further from where I wanna get? And that
1: has been really helpful. You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high quality animal protein, and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork-raised, crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. And that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year sign up today at butcherbox.com/impact and use code IMPACT to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. What I love about that, and I really hope people are listening to what you're saying, is you're doing it with an eye towards getting better. To me, there's an element, and this is why I brought up um, Principles by Ray Dalio, is his thing is all about, like, I'm just trying to get to truth. Yes. And one of the things that I wish on every human being is to one day, in some way, shape, or form, understand what it's like to be an entrepreneur in that If the company does well, fortune can be yours, and if it does poorly, you can lose everything. Sure. The amount of bullshit that cuts through is crazy. Like, it's not even necessarily that I don't want to have an ego. I'd love to have a big, thriving ego, and people are always saying like, how do you stay humble with the success? Dude, because if I don't, I'm gonna lose everything.
0: No, the, the reality of how low the margin for error is, is like the ultimate recipe or sort of shortcut to humility. Like let's say we're, I'm fighting with um, uh, an editor or, or someone or even just a friend who's reading one of my books about you know the use of this sentence or this paragraph or this stylistic or you know something in a book. I don't have the room to be like you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> like I'm a genius. Let me do this right because if I'm wrong, I don't feel so secure in uh, what I do that I feel like I can afford to let ego make any of those decisions. I have to let truth make those decisions. So, you know, there's a, a writing adage. It's like when, when someone says that something's wrong, they're almost always right. And I think this is true in life. When someone says there's something wrong with what you're doing or, you know, how you're carrying yourself or what you're, you know, a project, or a product, um, they're almost always right. When they explain why it's wrong or how to fix it, they're almost always wrong. So it's like when someone's saying like, I don't like chapter six, they're right. They don't like chapter six, right? When they say you should get rid of chapter six, or you should you know, make chapter six the opposite of what it is, or get rid of this story. They're probably wrong, but you should try to figure out why chapter six isn't working and improve it, and make sure that it's aligned with your vision, because maybe it's not. Or if it's perfectly aligned with your vision, then you have to make the
1: tough call and go, look, I'm not gonna please this person. All right, so now the million dollar question, how the hell do you know the difference?
0: First off, you should just go like, like I'll give you an example, I, I, I've talked about this before too, but like one of the dangers of entrepreneurship is, or making anything, is that like people around you are gonna be like, that's not a good idea, don't do it. Mm. And then you don't listen, and you do it, and you end up being right. Well, you've kind of just learned a, a very dangerous lesson, which is like just disregard what other people say. So one of the reasons you tend to see people on the way up Take a company like Uber, they're just like blowing past conventional wisdom, business best practices. They're doing it their way over and over and over again, and they're going up and up and up. And that's creating a feedback loop where it's like, the rules don't matter. We do it our way. We do it our way. And they're being rewarded for it over and over again. And then at some point they cross a line. And now all of a sudden they started to do things that are illegal, that are unethical, that their customers aren't going to like, but there's a delay between doing that and being held responsible for that and that's where the sort of catastrophic explosion and consequences Inevitably come in and so whenever you feel yourself going I'm just gonna blow past what everyone's saying. They're all idiots You know, they don't know that's a really bad sign that you're probably doing something out of ego so I think that certainty is something I'm always uh, nervous about like uh, so it's become sort of cliche in entrepreneur circles, and and you've probably read this article. You know the idea of like it's it's hell yes or hell no, right? Like either, you're either a thousand percent on it or you say no. But all the difficult decisions I've ever made in my life were like, you know, fifty one forty nine. <laughs> so so it's like in some ways I'm actually really skeptical. I I think that there's a great point in that article, which is like just don't do, you know, don't do stuff just because you're supposed right. to. But it should be tough and if it feels easy then i want to question that i guess is, is one of my answers and then look nobody said writing a book or being a leader or you know shepherding some vision no one said it was going to be easy and clear and you were going to know these are things that are going to keep you up at night and that you got to roll the dice on to a certain degree and so you just do it and then if you're wrong you learn and you do it better next time
1: how do you Keep your emotions out of the way. Like, I I have a very simple formula, which is the thing that I want in this world, I want so desperately. That and it's not an ego thing, so it's very. I have an ego for sure, but it's very easy for me to set that aside because it's not the thing that I want most. Okay. And so in those times of like emotionally, I want to do this. Yeah. But then I just check it against. Oh, does it actually help me get where I want to go? No. Okay. Cool. Then I'm going to go after that yeah. thing. What mechanism do you have for dealing with that?
0: Well, one of, I think one of the best ways is just time, right? Uh, Abraham Lincoln famously, whenever he was like really mad at a subordinate, like you know one of the generals in the Civil War he would write them like just a really nasty letter. Like he would just, this is what you're doing wrong. This is, you know, he, he would write everything that he wanted to say and then he'd put that letter in an envelope and then put it in his drawer and then wait, you know, a day or a week. And then most of the time he wouldn't send it. And so one of the things I try to do is I go like, do I really need to respond to this right now? Because that tends to be where that emotion, the emotions are typically immediate, right? Like I'd find even the things that I'm really upset about, I'm most upset about them when I first find out about them. If I give it a weekend or if I sleep on it, I'm much less upset about them and I'm going to be more rational and I'm going to be more responsible with how I reply. So I, I just want to give it some time. I mean, one of the tests that I have, I do this with emails a lot. Like if I'm fighting or if I'm arguing with someone, I'll go like, what if I just pretend I didn't get their response? Like I'm not even gonna read it. Like I know, like I just said, I just said my piece, and then they sent me a response back like five minutes later. I'm just not gonna, I'm just gonna delete it, right? And then I'll let them have to resend it to me or just let the issue drop. Right? So I'm kind of just sticking my head in the sand, but I'm I'm really just creating space for there to be less. 'Cause they're not gonna resend the exact same thing. They're right. gonna, hey, we need to talk about that thing. We'll go, oh, what was it? And then we'll you know, we'll, <laughs> we'll have a little bit of more reasonable of a dialogue. When I feel that impulse, it's like I gotta deal with this right now, that's emotion and that's probably not gonna get the best solution out of things. What are
1: things that wind you up to use a nice British phrase?
0: That get me pissed off? Yeah. You know, when people mess with my stuff. So like if I like writing is about what I'm trying to accomplish, right? And so I did it the way I wanted it to be done and I'll get really upset like if something comes back to me even if it's small and like a change is made without just like I'm very open to taking criticism and feedback but like I I caught something let's say with a copy editor recently on, on a book I was working on where like they reworked something without they just assumed I would be okay with it and they reworked it and I caught it and that was very upsetting to me right because if I hadn't caught it. Something that I didn't sign off on could have gone out to the right. my readers. But you know, uh, I was much more upset about it at three o'clock on a Tuesday than I was the following Thursday when I finally got to the bottom of what happened and I worked through it. It's just never that great to act out. Okay, actually I'll give you something because I, I think about this question a lot too. And so I've asked uh, some of the basketball coaches that I've, that I've worked with or have read my book, I was like, uh, I was like do you ever get like a technical on purpose (laughs) because like a coach you know the worst thing a coach could do is get so mad about something that they give the team the opposing team an extra point Mm. right so obviously you don't want to get a technical on accident like because you're just whipped around by your emotions but sometimes you should get upset to send a message to your team to send a message Mm. to the refs you know to get the crowd going whatever it is and so i'm i I was like that i'm i'm interested if i'm going to use my emotions I want to be calm internally, but projecting the emotional response that's going to be effective in that situation, but I don't want to be jerked around by those emotions
1: unconsciously. Dude, that, that's advanced class shit. Yeah. So this is something I don't often talk to people about, but is is absolutely necessary, I think, to certainly be running a company is, A, you've got to be able to control your emotions so that you're not getting whipped around, as you said, but B, you have to understand that all of this, even emotions, expressed, suppressed, facial expressions, all of it is a performance meant to convey something. Yes. And once you understand that you can leverage outrage, intensity, anger, whatever the case may be, as a tool to move somebody down the road, then you can really start to become effective.
0: Well think about it this way, if you yell at your people every time something is wrong, they'll just be like, oh, Tom's a yeller, and if I just don't mind being yelled at. I can get away with anything. Right. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And that's a very that happens in companies Super a common. lot. It's like you have to be calcul in some ways calculating and controlled, and choose what you're going to get upset about. Otherwise, the people that you're projecting that to aren't going to be able to discern a minor mistake from a catastrophic mistake. It's very important that you're not the the boy who cried wolf. You know, the the one who's who's. uh Screaming about inconsequential matters, and then when someone messes something up, when they cross that red line, they're not going to take it seriously. Because you're like, look, you yelled at me yesterday because the the coffee was cold, and you know here you messed up something on my calendar or whatever it is. That you've got to you've got to be able to use the those are t- those emotions, how you articulate what you're feeling, or your you know how you're going to act in a meeting, or how you're going to pre- you know present a plan. That's a communication tool, mm-hmm. and you've got to be able to use that. You can't just be oh I'm not feeling it so I'm down today or I'm in a shitty mood so I'm gonna be yelling today. That's not a good way to make those tough decisions.
1: I think of ego as the enemy and perennial seller somewhat as compendiums to each other. I don't know if you feel the same. what and i guess if you don't i'll give you my reasons for that if you want to create something great yeah you need to get your ego out of the way right so that's sort of the moral of the story for me right so the perennial seller addresses how to actually tactically (coughs) create something that's great but you can still feel the ego's the enemy elements in it where it's like you're ultimately the one that's going to stop you or propel you forward yes so taking that concept of if you want to create something great this is how you get out of your own way what are like the three or four things that people need to do, think, believe, whatever in order to achieve greatness?
0: Well, so number 1 like what are you actually trying to do? Cuz you can't do 15 things at the same time. So like, here's what I'm making. That's the the main like do you actually know, right? Cuz sometimes people are trying to do too much at one time. And then who is this for? Cuz it can't be for you. You know, like obviously everything that you work on should be fulfilling and exciting and interesting to you, but you're not the customer of your product by definition, right? You can't buy it from yourself. So like, how is this going to provide value for the audience? That's like the most important thing. And and that has to be the ruthless test that you check everything you're doing against. Number three is like, who are the people that are helping you check whether you're doing that or not, right? And so I think you need to have that test even if you're self-funding an entrepreneurial venture. Like the fact that you, know, you were successful in the past so you don't have to get venture capital on your next project, that's great. But it's also a potential disadvantage because now you don't have this external objective mm-hmm. feedback telling you where you can improve, where you can fall short. So that means you need to work extra hard to cultivate those people, whether it's a board of directors, whether it's trusted friends, whether it's a, a focus group, like who is interacting with this thing and giving you feedback, I think that's really important. And then I would say that fourth and the most important one, and this is where ego, I think, kills a lot of projects, is people think like, if I build it, they will come, right? If I just make something so good, it will automatically be successful. Or they go, I'm a maker, like I shouldn't have to also be a marketer. And, and to me, the creative process, the entrepreneurial process, is sort of two consecutive marathons. So you run this marathon, you you make a book, you know, you have a movie in the can, you have a, a prototype of an invention, whatever it is, you you know, you stagger across the finish line, and you're like, I did it, and like, you know, the race proctor they grab you, and you think they're taking you to the medal stand. <laughs> they're like, you know, you did it, you won, uh, but really they're just like taking you through a shoot to the starting line of the second marathon, which is now how the hell do we get this into people's hands, right? And so with every book, it's like the first marathon is making it for me, and then the second marathon is like, all right, now I have to be as creative, I have to work as hard, I have to throw as much energy into selling this thing to everyone that it's potentially for as humanly possible. And so I tend to find that creatives are either with books or movies or whatever I'm working on is either they're only interested in the marketing marathon because they're great salespeople and they think like, oh, I'll just slap something together or they're so creative and they so love that process that they want to they wanna skip the second marathon. Courage, temperance, justice, wisdom. The only one that I think people are unfamiliar with is temperance, which basically means say. self-discipline uh, okay. or moderation, some combination of those two things. But the cardinal virtues are the cardinal version, virtues of Christianity, of stoicism, of a whole bunch of different philosophical schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, this is my first attempt at doing a series
1: of interconnected, intertwined books. Why do you think virtues matter? Like what is the, so much has been made of this and like the whole stoic philosophy is around it and much of philosophy, quite frankly.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think what virtue is trying, the idea of virtue tries to answer the question of like, how should a person be? Like what code should you live your life Mm -hmm. by? What sort of standard should you hold yourself to? How should you evaluate your behavior? What should you, what is the mark that you're striving for? And what I like about, Courage, temperance, justice, and wisdom is first off, they're all interrelated and Im- impossible to actually separate, right? Like justice uh, is impossible without courage, but also uh, courage, if not in pursuit of justice, isn't anything to admire, mm. right? And so they're all really... And then you take something like wisdom. The pursuit of wisdom is the scariest thing in the world. Why?
1: I would well, not because, have said that. I would have because, said
0: courage is way scarier. Well, I'm, what I'm saying is you need courage to pursue truth because truth challenges us, mm. right? Truth can put us on in the minority of something, right? Truth can uh, force us to see uncomfortable things about ourselves. Um, the, the, the pursuit of knowledge is a journey that most people are afraid to go on, right? They just take what other people tell them or they're- Do you think they're actually afraid
1: to go on that journey or do they just by default?
0: I mean, I think it's it's a default, but what is behind the default? Why don't people pursue things, right? Mm. And I think fear is obviously a sort of a through line in a lot of people's lives. But I think the idea of the virtues is they're all related to each other, but there's not a single situation of any significance or importance in life that does not call upon at least one of those virtues from us. And so to me, it's sort of like uh, the lodestar of like what direction you're going in life.
1: Okay. Have you thought at all about why having, because I think everybody should live by a code. Mm -hmm. Obviously the Stoics do you, everything that you put out in your book certainly intimates that there's uh, meaning behind that. Do you have a sense of what that foundational sort of axiomatic reason to have a code is? Well,
0: you know, William James talks about he says the person you should pity the most in the world is the person who's having to wing it every day. Like That's the person who's having to decide everything anew
1: because of discomfort, poor decision making.
0: Right. Like imagine like you don't have a diet. You don't have a code. You don't have a th- a set of priorities in your life, you don't have something you're working towards, you don't have a way that you like to do things, then every single decision you have to think about mm. consciously, right? As opposed to being able to instinctually know or sort of measure against something. So his point is like, you want to make good habits. You want to sort of build these virtues or this code into your life. So you're not spending every, just just like the person who has to decide every morning, what could I wear this morning? Or what could I wear today? And having to choose from hundreds of things. That That is not what Steve Jobs does or Obama did in office. Obama had, had, I think, two suits, right? It's like black or blue, and you pick one, right? So I think one of the things that a code does or that the idea of the, the cardinal virtues does is it just narrows down the considerations that you have to weigh or consider in the course of a day. That's not to say it makes it easy because the decisions themselves are still often hard or there's risks involved, but you're not having to... Way an infinite amount of possibilities.
1: Mm. I also find, and I'm curious to see if this is true for you in your life. I'm distressed by the fact that if somebody were to ask me a question one day and then ask me the same question six weeks later, I might give you a different answer. And one of the answers is better than the other. And so, you know, Ray Dalio wrote the book Principles, and his whole sort of thesis is hey, in life, Everything you encounter is another one of these. Yeah. It's another situation where either courage is needed or temperance is needed, wisdom, or just specifics, like you handle like ideal in business a lot. So you handle this particular situation, let's say terminating an employee this way. And when right. you handle it this way, you know, even though some things are different, that on average, that's going to be the most wise thing. And so his idea is you turn everything into a principle, a way of doing things. And do you does that factor into what you're saying here with the virtues? I think so Abs- absolutely.
0: You think about like a professional sports coach. They know just like a card player, set of probabilities, what you do if it's in these different parameters. Because again, imagine the football coach who's having to consider all the possible plays mm. in each situation. There you're you just don't have the time or the bandwidth to do that, right? Especially when your opponent is trying to speed up the game. And misdirect you so you make the wrong decision or you make, let's make, sometimes you're making a gut decision and that's correct. Sometimes you're making a conscious decision and that's what's incorrect. But the idea is you sort of set a, a it was funny actually, Um, someone once criticized uh, Franklin, Ben Franklin. He had like his 12 virtues. The, again, they fluctuate, but he had 12 virtues. And they said it was like he hemmed himself in in a paddock, like a a fence they make around in a horse. Uh, they would make around a horse. And then he trotted inside the paddock. And this was their sort of condescending intellectual critique of of Ben Franklin. But I think that's actually the perfect way to live. Like, here's all the boundaries that I have. Here's the things that I don't do, that I don't think about, that are off the table for me because I consider them immoral or unjust or cowardly or stupid or whatever the thing is. And then here's all the things that I have to worry about. It's a much smaller sphere to consider. And so... I I think that's kind of the idea of virtues is, is to create sort of a structure that you can live in that guides you. So you're not again, winging it on these critical decisions. Um, And, you know, I I think about one of the things I talk about in the book is this, you know, you go, but what about me? Right. Or what would happen if, right? We ask ourselves. this is how we sort of psych ourselves out of doing things that, uh, You know, don't fit with the code because we're suddenly considering a bunch of other stuff that's actually irrelevant to to like how we've decided
1: to live our Mm. life. The idea of hemming yourself in of building that fence, I think, makes a lot of sense when you think about virtues in the context of it's not just that I'm making decisions easier and that I'm avoiding the mental fatigue of having to pick clothes and things like that, but that it's about a, a life well lived. And the idea of well lived becomes one of the most important questions anybody is going to answer in their life, and you know my initial question for me as I think about okay what's my answer it's it's really about suffering, okay and I one of the things that so I always journal on a guest before they come in like what was it I liked about the book the way they're thinking, and you know one of the ideas. that I'm asking myself is how much of courage is innate and how much of courage is cultural? Meaning if you, if somebody weren't taught the express virtue of courage, would they not still have a sense of revulsion when they were acting cowardly? And I have a feeling that they would, I have a feeling that nature has given us, the virtues from these are the things that keep you alive, that make you a good contributor to a social um, situation. And, you know, these were the things that increased our likelihood of surviving. And so as I think about, okay, there isn't going to be just total parity that every society through all time will have the same virtues. But I have a feeling that a lot of them are going to rhyme because of that sort of innate suffering that rises up uh, when you think about, not acting courageously or going, you know, always with your emotional whims and just somehow your life doesn't add up and you're not able to get where you want. And you see this a lot with, you know, people in their twenties are very impetuous. And then as they get older, they think, what the fuck am I doing with my life? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And, and that impulse to what am I doing with my life? Even though it was pleasurable, you know, six months ago, you weren't even thinking about it. At some point, there's some subconscious thing that kicks in that just makes you feel uneasy.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think for almost all of human history, courage has existed as a virtue because we wouldn't have survived as a species without courage, right? You could say wisdom or justice or uh, temperance. These are, I don't want to say sort of uh, uh, modern problems, but they 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 matter. Uh, they matter less primally than just like. Can you be brave, under pressure, under threat, whether it's from a woolly mammoth or an attacking tribe or something like that? So, you know, when you when you study the history of courage, for most of human history, courage meant like sort of physical courage, mm-hmm. like courage under fire, right? Um, and it's only somewhat recently, in you know, the last few thousand years, that we also had this better understanding of moral courage, right? What one does under pressure, under the threat of a tyrant, you know, the pursuing of truth or uh, of one's own sort of way of living or, you know, being true to oneself. So there there are these sort of two components to courage. There's physical courage and moral courage. But as I studied the literature and I decided sort of what direction I wanted to take the book in, what really struck me is the, the two things, what those two types of courage have in common. Is that it's about putting your ass on the line in some way, right? And I think there is no such thing as a good life if you don't put your ass on the line. So I think a person who never risks it, who never puts themselves out there, um, even if they're comforter, even if they're comforted, uh, sorry, even if they're comfortable, even if all of their needs are taken care of, at the end of the day they probably have some nagging sense that more was possible. Mm-hmm. So even in that sense, cowardice sort of dog us. there's an expression like of cowards, nothing is written because they don't do anything that's notable me or, or memorable, right? Um, it's It's hard to put yourself out there, but on the other side of that risk is like
1: good stuff. Dude, that really hit me for some reason, like strangely emotionally. Uh, of cowards nothing is written. There's so many amazing quotes in your book um, and I wanna read one that, this one like stopped me dead in my tracks. Um, There is no deed in this life so impossible that you cannot do it. Your whole life should be lived as a heroic deed. Was that you? I can't, I didn't, unfortunately. Okay, I I didn't write down whether it was you or somebody else. That's fucking amazing.
0: It's a great quote, I loved it. He has this beautiful book called uh, Calendar of Wisdom. Uh, which is like he it's like a favorite quote from him every day, and some meditations on it um which i was love. that him
1: speaking to a character or an uh, interview that you do that that's in
0: a calendar of wisdom okay um but i think I think that's a good way of thinking about your life, right which is that um if you think of your life if you live your life as a coward, it will be a cowardly, unimpressive life, but if you live your life as if it matters right like um if you don't believe that you can be heroic or make a difference or do anything in this world, you're right in the sense that you will not Mm. be that person, right? Like they talk about the great man of history theory. Um, can an individual change the course of history? What we know for certain is that people who don't believe in the great man of history theory are very unlikely to be (laughs) the great man or woman of history. Right? So like, uh, Change, uh, greatness, success depends on, by definition, believing that you're capable of doing it and that you're willing to do it. And so there is a certain, obviously, courage is much more complicated than that, but it starts there. Mm-hmm. Like it starts with if you believe that nothing matters, if you believe that it's all hopeless, that we're all, uh, you know, uh, uh, victims of the system or of circumstance. That it's all about you know these structures and forces, and that it's impossible, and that it doesn't matter. Um, you're right.
1: It's a great quote in the book. Nihilism is cowardice. Yes. Do you remember who said that? General Mattis said, "Cynicism is cowardice." Cynicism. Thank you. And and it's this. You it's talk this, about nihilism a lot in the yes. book, but sorry, I conflated two things.
0: No, no, no. I think they're they're nihilism is just uh, the extreme version of cynicism to me again if you think that it doesn't matter if it doesn't count if it's hopeless um not only is it unlikely that you'll ever make a difference or change things or or, or have an impact but it's also that's a wonderfully safe place to be it's sad right but it's also freeing because then nothing you do has any significance uh the stakes are extremely low uh, nobody's watching you can't fail you can't let anyone down there's no potential to waste or further away and so i think there is courage just in the earnestness of like caring and i think i think you and i both see this in the stuff that we talk about like you'll hear from people who are like oh this is so lame or this is just motivational shit right like you know people who look <laughs> totally. down on people who are just Earnestly trying to get better. Mm. And that's not to say that there isn't a certain amount of cheesiness sometimes, or that it, it it it's like uh physics or something. You know, that's not it's it it's not as rigorous as this, that, or the other, but there is something powerful about earnestly caring and trying. And I remember Robert Green, uh, he wrote this in one of his books, but he talked to me about it because it sort of encapsulated my teenagers, like. I didn't really have anyone that believed in me when I was younger, and so I didn't really believe in myself. I was a good runner, um, but I never tried. Like I I not only slacked off in practice, I tried to like get away with not practicing. I remember I ran a 502 mile Whoa. in the middle of my senior year. While slacking off? Yeah, I was I was good, right? But I remember thinking if I, 502, if I stop here, I won't have to feel shitty if I just sort of shrug. Like if I just shrug my shoulders and go 502 is close to sub five, then I'm protected from trying and failing. Oh my God. You know what I mean? Yes, and that's a I lived my whole life like that. That's yes, I know a what you mean. very common idea. If you don't try, you can't fail. And if you don't put yourself out there, you can't feel like a piece of shit. If you fall short, so there's real there's real courage in the earnestness, in the effort, in trying, um, and and I would say as someone who you know didn't naturally come to writing or to videos or podcasts or any of the stuff that I do now, public speaking, like it's scary to suck at something at first. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> oh yes. Yeah. And 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 like like a lot of people aren't
1: able to sit with that. Head right now to netsuite.com slash theory. Again, that's netsuite.com slash theory. Get the information you need. Head to netsuite.com slash theory. So they don't do it. Facts. Dude, you literally just described my 20s. I was... I was haunted by the fact that some part of me knew that I was taking smaller and smaller jobs because I really wanted the person I was interviewing with to look at me and go, God, you're so smart, why are you applying for this job? Mm. And uh, to live for that moment is so foolish, but to see how many years of my life that need to be thought of as smart, right. um, because I didn't want to suck at something, I didn't want to be foolish, I didn't wanna face the thought that I may be you know, not as smart as I wanted to be. Um, and it was just giving me the life essentially that I deserve based on the choices that I was making, which was one that, you know, left me sort of laying face down on the carpet of my unfurnished apartment, just like spiraling into darkness
0: when it's harder too when what you are thinking about doing is a public facing thing, Mm. right? Like, uh, making videos or books or whatever, All, all music uh, putting yourself out there—that's like that's the hardest part, right? To go out for something and be rejected for it, just as to tell someone how you feel about them, or to you know decide, hey, I'm going to quit my job and move across country and do X, Y, or Z—that's that makes a person so vulnerable. And so again, the courage to run into a burning building to save someone, or to throw yourself in front of a bullet, or you know, to stare down, you know, someone bigger and stronger than you. That is courage. And that is what courage has been for thousands of years. But there is also courage in being yourself and taking an unconventional path in trying and failing, right? And trying and failing again, over and over and over again. That—that That is this, at the core for my definition of courage is, is putting your ass on the line.
1: I love that. I want to like really beat to death this idea of earnestness, which was one of the, the things that I loved most about the book is the acknowledgement of the thing that not a lot of people put their finger on, which is there's kind of a goofiness and uncoolness to, um, believe in heroism and heroic acts. And it's become like passe. And we do take that cynical look. And I love that. And I love some of the stories that you tell, like, dude, the the movie i'm sure people have seen 300 about the battle at thermopylae but the way that you tell it which by the way this book is be interested to see if you agree with this one of your more more poetic was that intentional
0: i i'm always trying to get better as i write and uh i think what i was really trying to do is focus on story in this book because for almost all of human history how have we instilled courage in people mm. it's through story which actually goes to what you're just saying about um the sort of the cynicism so there's a, a great line from one of theodore roosevelt's biographers they said you know uh, theodore roosevelt grew up uh, at as a young man theodore roosevelt read stories about the great men and women of history and decided to be just like them and the way they sort of phrase it when i heard it the first time i actually picked up like a hint of a sneer <laughs> right like a, like what a what a ridiculous person right and that was kind of the like now we sort of th- see Theodore Roosevelt in in sort of hundred years distant in a bunch of different ways we we knock him for the imperialism and some of the racism and, and things like that but we also sort of we see him as an inspirational figure this guy who sort of conquers his asthma and becomes a politician we see it we love his energy and his enthusiasm but at the time these were like those that was prime the primary criticism of him that he like cared too much that he was uh he was too energetic that he was he was a clown right that like he th- they mocked him for his sincere commitment to these things that it wasn't serious and dignified like he was trying too hard mm. right and for an aristocratic you know young man of immense means and and privilege that's like not gentlemanly, like to have ambition and to care and to try. Um, But I love that. And I love that idea of like, yeah, if you read about the people of history, and you don't think I want to be like them, what? That doesn't make you cool. That makes you a loser, like by definition to me, right? Like, so I love the idea of like, no, I actually like, I actually care. And I actually believe in this stuff. Like, these the the characters in my books are not like are not just like words on a page. Like I I I admire and am fascinated with and like it these people are sort of swirling around in my head and my heart and they guide me and inspire me and challenge me and also serve as cautionary tales too. But just the idea that like life has meaning, that you matter, that you can make a difference, that History is not just a parade of shitty people and crimes and awfulness and hypocrites, that we are making progress and that things are getting better and that it's getting better because people were courageously committed to ideas and ideals and risked themselves and their reputations to try to make those things more real.
1: I want to get back to 300, but first I have a quote uh, that goes with exactly what you just said. Um, which I think is really extraordinary. It's long. Bear with me. This is you. The existential vacuum that began in the 20th century continues to suck us into its dark maw. Religion, patriotism, industry, each day, collective belief in these pillars of humanity weakens. Just look at what we tell ourselves about history. Do we choose to see ourselves as the latest descendants in a long line of ancestors who have been struggling valiantly against the odds towards a better world, Or are we the bastard children of irredeemable racists, pillagers, and monsters? Are we the future of humanity, progress, or are we the plague upon this earth? Yeah, I mean, take someone like Thomas
0: Jefferson, right? Um, When you really study Thomas Jefferson, he was awful. Like, he owned not just a few slaves, but a lot of slaves. He impregnated those slaves yeah. and therefore owned his own children, which he did not free from slavery. He tricked uh, uh, Sally Hemings to come to Europe with him, telling him that he would free her when they got back, which he then didn't do. Um, all, all of which to say is that they and it, it goes without saying that their relationship was impossibly uh, uh, corrupt and broken because he owned her as a person. So you could say that all their, you know, sort of interactions are are forcible and, and uh, you know, consent is impossible. Awful, he said, you know, of slavery, he said, I tremble for my country when I realize that God is just. Like he knew that slavery was a horrendous, unspeakable evil and yet did nothing, right? He didn't free his slaves. Washington's the only founder that frees his slaves. They all found slavery to be morally contemptible and challenging. And yet none of them did anything about Mm. it. So when you study someone like Thomas Jefferson, who we hold up as this great American, when you really look at it, it like it breaks your heart. You're like, fuck this guy, right? But also he writes, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. So what are you gonna when you look at someone like Thomas Jefferson? I guess what I'm saying is the nihilist view is that all these people were hypocrites, they all sucked. Uh, it's all meaningless. It was all based on a lie. And I definitely get why there are activists. We're getting a little bit of injustice. I get why there are activists and historians who dedicate, who look so narrowly at this that it's hard not to become a cynical nihilist, right? Um, and yet, what Thomas Jefferson writes down is also what Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King use his own words to take the country from where it was in 1776 to where it was in 1865, to where it was in 1965, to where it is now. And so I guess, and I think about this now that I have kids, and I think about this in this racial reckoning we're in, we have to decide, are we going to take the easy path out, which is to say that it's all hopeless, it's all awful, it's all fruit from the poison tree, or are we going to say and, and Ralph Ellison says this in Invisible Man which is one of the great uh, great novels of the 20th century he says you know you can love the ideas but not the men who created the ideas and i think again it's easy to to dismiss it all it takes courage to say no like i actually believe in this and i actually believe in it more than thomas jefferson did and i believed in it more than the generation after and after and after and then i'm going to fight and it's worth sacrificing for and it's worth committing to to help make them a little bit more real
1: damn i cannot wait to read your book on justice sounds like this is going to be interesting i and i totally agree man look to me frame of reference is everything and it, it is very easy to look at the past and see only horrible things. And I'm sure if I looked at, to bring this um, back around to the guys at 300, that if I looked at who they were in real life, I'd be mortified to my fucking core. But there are ideas to example, your point. You
0: know why the Spartans were so yoked and, and like good at fighting? It's because the Spartans existed as a warrior culture and then there was uh, basically a secondary race called the Helots, who did all the other work, right? Like it was a slave. It was a military slave society mm-hmm. in which slaves did all the work, so the guys could uh, train all the time and be the greatest warriors ever, right? And so, yeah, when you get when you dig into it, you can you can cut it up in so many pieces that it becomes impossible to see anything of any significance or meaning. Um, So are you going to do that as an excuse to not have to care, to not have to try, to not have to risk yourself? Or are you going to look at the incredible sacrifice and heroism that these 300 guys and a bunch of their slaves marched out and faced down probably the worst odds in the history of warfare and succeeded in the sense that they knew they would die? but their objective was to buy time, which they paid for with their lives.
1: Dude, that, that is such a, a big idea. I've never heard anybody talk about it, but the way that we slice it up, the way that we look at it is gonna determine what we take from it, is going to determine our inspiration, is going to determine how we act. In fact, oh God, you say something in the book. Uh, I probably wrote it down, but it would take me too long to find. The idea being that Ultimately, your beliefs inform your behavior and therefore like what you decide to believe, it was like, oh God, your beliefs become your virtue. Oh, I'm gonna have to fucking look this up. Can you well, vamp Peter, and bias T- time if you know what I'm talking about roughly? Yeah,
0: Peter Thiel talks about effective truths, right? So if you don't believe something's possible, it's not possible. Of course, just because you believe something is possible doesn't mean that it is, but it starts course with the belief
1: but I thought that idea was really powerful that what matters are your behaviors but what is it that gives birth to your behaviors it's ultimately your beliefs and as we you know right now what, what I feel like we're living through with social media and the the way that ideas can spread so quickly is this becomes a framing device and when you look at um, there. Are, There are like debating tactics where it's like if you can control the frame of the argument, then you can frame the argument in a way that you can win it. Yeah. And so this is this is sort of the crazy making thing that happens on the Internet is people can shift the focus of an argument to something. And if you don't challenge the very sort of framing of what we're talking about, then you you know, you get into something that isn't productive, that doesn't help. And so what you're talking about now with your 300 example of, yes, you could look at that and just be mortified to your core, but then you also miss the opportunity to look at this other thing, this courageous act, this thing that we should all aspire to.
0: Well, you take someone like Winston Churchill, right? And it's kind of become, he's for a long time been sort of the hero of the 20th century. This is the guy who stares down the Nazis. Does he also contribute to a famine in uh, in the Middle East? Uh, Does he... uh, not support gandhi uh does, is he uh for much of his career like let's say opposed to female suffrage a whole bunch was he maybe an alcoholic yeah like all true right um and so you can focus on that and, to, and you should focus on it in that it is, insofar it is true, and to deny that it is true is to reject the the virtue of wisdom, right? So when people go like, the Civil War wasn't about slavery, like that's not what we're talking about. You don't get to stick your head in the sand and deny that facts are facts, but you have to decide what facts are you going to take and integrate into your understanding of the world and what your imperative as an individual is. And so what I think say, Churchill is a wonderful example of it, and I talk about him in the intro of the book. He says, look, destiny taps us on the shoulder. And he says, it would be a shame if in the moment of your potential finest hour, you weren't ready or you rejected it. Now, were there little moments where he did reject opportunity to be even greater than he was? Absolutely. And I think we should talk about that. Why was he so afraid of someone like Gandhi? Why did he have regressive beliefs about X, Y and Z? And let's also look at the penalties he paid for those. When when Winston Churchill gets basically kicked out of public life for like 10 years leading up to the Second World War, it's because of his failures on these issues. Um, But when the nazi menace is staring him down when tyranny has overrun europe and a generation of british leaders has appeased it and appeased it and appeased it uh churchill says no like churchill says like this isn't right churchill says you know i think we should fight to the very end um his 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 daughter-in-law asked him, and, it's a th- and every time I think about it, uh, I get chills. She says, "Like, well, what do we do if, if they land?"
1: I remember this quote. In the book. Um,
0: you know, what do we do if they come? And he says, "What's stopping you from going into the kitchen and grabbing a butcher knife?" And I, so it was like, and this, taking a few of these bastards with you. Yeah, like he was committed to the very end that this was. He knew irredeemable evil when he saw it, and he drew a line which to me is what courage is about. Again, he's not perfect. There was a bunch of other things he did wrong. There were many moments that the British Empire, when he was in charge of it, did evil things. But when the worst evil of the 20th century appeared, when destiny tapped him on the shoulder, he was ready. And I think that's what courage is about. Now, it may be that you and I don't get enormous moments like that, but we will get the smaller moments. And when I say that like courage is calling, that's what I'm talking about, It's that it's always there. The opportunity to be courageous is always there. The Stoics say like we don't, the Stoics believed not so much in predestination, but they believed that the vast majority of our circumstances were out of our control. So Epictetus is born a slave, not his control. Marcus Aurelius is chosen to be emperor, not, as, not in his control. This is a high place and a low place. But both of those situations demand courage in their own way. Mm. And I think uh, if we accept that, okay, the vast majority of our life is predetermined by circumstances and evolution and uh, the moment we're born and all of that, great. But what do you do with the little moments that life offers you? Do you pick the brave choice or the cowardly choice? Do you think about, do you say, what about me? Or do you think about... uh, I think a good question is what would the world look like if everyone did what I'm about to do, right? Like if everyone turned away and said, that's gonna cost me too much, right? We wouldn't, we would not be in a good place. And Mm -hmm. so I think that's when you decide how you're gonna look at history, it's are you gonna be inspired by the people who stepped up or are you gonna use the failures of history as an excuse uh, to not have to try. What drives you? I think what, what drives me is, is trying to figure out the things that I wish that I was taught, uh, that I wish were part of what you're supposed to learn in elementary school and middle school and high school. You know, um, philosophy was supposed to be historically this, it, they would call it the guide to the good life, right? So it's something we've been thinking about for a long time. But like where is this guide you know like I no one gave it I read a lot of books in school there were a lot of you know things that they made us look at and nowhere did I ever get this guide and so I think I, I'm always sort of searching for for the answer to that question you know like how does one live how is one supposed to live what do you do in the morning what do you do at night you know how do you find happiness you know the answers to these questions and and so I'm looking for that personally and then I think professionally, my job is to then share
1: the answers to those questions as I as I find them. That's really interesting. So especially now that you're on the bandwagon of fatherhood. Yes. Uh, which I'm very curious to hear more of your take on that. But like, would you ever write like for somebody in grade school, like that manual?
0: And I usually am writing to a younger version of myself when I'm writing. That's one of the, I think you, you have to, as a writer, you have to have some idea who your audience mm. is. Like you have to be able to envision that person and speak to them. And so one of the people that I'm always trying to speak to is me, whether it's five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago. I don't know if I have enough insight into where I was at that age that I feel like I could really speak to to that exactly. But I do love really well done uh, children's books. I mean, like if you've ever read The Little Prince, there's tons of lessons mm-hmm. in there. I think right now I'm, I've still got enough to say, to me, just a couple years ago, before I can go back in time quite that far.
1: Right. What? How? Like the smile that you had on your face. I want to make sure we show okay. that when I asked you about becoming a father. Yeah. How has it changed the way that you think or approach life?
0: So my son is 13 months. So I don't have a ton of experience yet, uh, but I would say I'll give you three three lessons. I say so. Number one is it becomes much easier to say no to things because you realize we seem to have a, a limitless capacity to steal time from ourselves, right, you know? <laughs> yeah. uh, and the Stoics talk about this all the time, you know, like we would gar- you would be uh, incensed if one of your neighbors cr- encroached onto your physical property. But if one of your neighbors came over and just talked your ear off for an hour, you would find it rude to be like, get out of here. Right. I don't want to speak with you. Right? Do you know what I mean? Like, So yes. we, we protect our physical space much more than we protect our time, even though physical space can be regained and time can never be regained. Yeah. And so one of the things that it's like, even I've been married uh, for a while and, and I've been with my wife for a long time. I even found that I I was comfortable stealing time from her and from our relationship in a way that I'm not comfortable stealing time from a A Child who I've promised as much of my time as I can to right right so it becomes easier to say no to in in Inessential things that's number one number two. I would say is That especially when my son was first born was sort of learning that like parenting is just actually just being there right like just physically in the space so Almost nothing else in my life was would be like would sitting in a chair not doing anything be doing something, right? Right, And so it's it's really slowed me down in a very good way, right? That like, my job is to sit here while he plays around on the floor doing whatever he wants. I don't need to be as purpose-oriented, and that's been a really good lesson for me. Because like, I got- really
1: Why is that a good lesson?
0: Because if you think that action is the end-all be-all, you end up doing action for the sake of doing action, right? So I, I feel like I should always be doing and doing and doing, but sometimes you're just supposed to be, and oftentimes just sort of being there and sitting there and being still is where really great insights come from, and this is also where happiness comes from. You know, it's hard to be happy and appreciate and feel gratitude when you're just moving all the time. Uh, my therapist said to me one time, she's like, "You got to remember, it's it's human being, not human doing, right?" And 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 the, a, a kid is a really great reminder of the 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 being part because they're so always in the present moment right Mm -hmm. and then i think the last lesson is just sort of watching someone experience sort of just complete joy and again presentness um, is also a reminder that like things don't need to be as i'm a very intense person and although that intensity is responsible for a lot of my success it's also responsible for my unpleasant moments, Mm -hmm. right? It's responsible for anguish that I feel or insecurity that I feel and the the need to be busy all the time. And so I think just watching, you know, the simple pleasures that he can enjoy, I think, lets me feel a bit more gratitude and, and appreciation and then lets me focus on what's really essential.
1: All right. Well, now let's ask a really interesting okay. question, least. I'm deeply fascinated by this. So now let's imagine you wake up tomorrow and you don't have kids. Yes. What of those things would actually carry forward as transformative elements for you?
0: I would say, in a way, all, I would carry forward all of them, but having this, having this person, this living thing that you're responsible for, um, keeps those lessons top of mind because there's real consequences for it, right? It's a reminder that you can't do everything all at once and you do have to prioritize. There's someone who will be upset, who will be hurt, who will suffer for this, rather than you just deferring those costs into the future, which is what mm-hmm. I did before I had a son and, and what I think most people allow themselves to do all the time. You know, we know objectively that we're gonna die. We don't have unlimited amounts of time but we still spend it as if we have unlimited amounts of time because the consequences are so deferred into the future that we can get away with it. I also intellectually knew all those three things that I told you before, but it's been good. It's been the hardest thing that I've ever done, and, and I think it's good to challenge yourself that way. All right, so
1: abstract it from kids for a second. Okay. You're 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 a very methodical thinker, so what is the matrix by which you make a decision for how to spend your time, or even what to strive towards.
0: Look, I struggled with the time thing before I had a kid, so I'm all, my instinct is, I I heard a great line from Austin Kleon, and I I think he got it from somewhere else. He was saying, you know, that the job of, or the mindset of an entrepreneur, a creative person, is that you basically say yes to everything until you can get to a position where you can say no. But it's really hard to know that you've gotten to that position, (laughs) right? Especially because, you work yourself up into a state. I'll give you another actually analogy. A friend of mine, his name is Dr. Jonathan Fader. He's a sports psychologist. He works with the, the New York Giants and the New York Mets. And he was saying that in baseball, uh, particularly players from like the Dominican Republic, they have this saying. He said, you don't walk off the island. So basically, the only way you can get out of poverty or out of this place is by swinging. Right? You can only hit your way off the island. Right and so on the one hand what that does is it creates really aggressive players They swing at every pitch they can but then as soon as you make it in the major leagues It's all about bat discipline, mm. right? You can't swing at every pitch because the pitches are better uh, Because if you miss it causes problems for your team and so it's this balance right once you've arrived The thing that got you there is now in some ways your worst enemy and so that's something that I have always struggled with is like, I've always been the person that just said yes to everything. Early on in my career, you know, it was like, I can do all of it at the same time. I don't care if you think it's humanly impossible, I will outwork you, I I will make it possible. And so there was a time where I don't think I ever ended one of the opportunities that I had. So I was just adding them on top and on top. And I never hit a wall, like I just never hit it. And so always saying yes, always saying yes, that became who I was. And now as I've, as I've achieved a certain level of success and what I've done has gotten harder and harder, now it's all about protecting the space that I need to do that work. I think just the idea of needing to make those hard choices, knowing what's important, what's not important, what I'm trying to accomplish, not only have I struggled with that already in my life, but then having a kid makes the stakes of that higher, but then it's also just a learning experience.
1: There's a concept in Perennial Cellar which truly haunts me okay. and is it's clearly the sign of the thing that I struggle with along these lines, which was nothing is destroyed more great artists than the thought that they can do two mutually exclusive things at the same time. Yes. I, I butchered the quote, Sh- no, but no, y- right. you get the idea. And you've said that of your consulting business, you feel like all you do is untangle people's like mess of things that are often conflicting that they want to do. What What is it about that problem, and how do you help people through it?
0: Well, I think what, I, what I'm saying is that oftentimes people go, okay, here's really what I want to do, and this is what I'm trying to accomplish. And then they see all these other things that other people are doing, and then they, they kind of see that as like a grab bag, and they're like, and I want a little of this, and a little of this, and a little of this, and I want it all at the same time. And that's not really possible, you know? You can't play five sports at the same time. You got to pick one. You got to specialize. Maybe you can do two, but you probably can't do five, right? You can't be a classical musician and a rock star, you know, and this and this all at the same time. So it's about sort of picking your lane and then knowing that some some goals are mutually exclusive. The question I ask clients the most is like, what does success look like for you on this project? And I get them to really describe it to me and let's say there's more than one thing in there. I go, now if you could only pick one of those things and the other ones didn't happen, which one would you pick? And I'm trying to get them to sift through some of that conflict Mm. so we can really hone in on what we're trying to do. And oftentimes, where ego comes in is like we've got the things that impress other people and then the real meaningful impact that we're trying to have. And oftentimes, I'm not saying that the the status things aren't nice, and they're not they they're not impressive, and they're not cool. But
1: we've got to make sure that they're not coming at the expense of those other things. Right. I love that notion of you know asking yourself what success looks like for you and having that clarity. And how important is that clarity? Do you think for people that want to be successful, like how much of this is you start with a goal that is abundantly clear, and then you create a path?
0: I think one of the things that has really helped me make some of the decisions we were talking about earlier is what is like an ideal day of your life look like? Like maybe not right now, but like what do you want a day in your life to look like? And so if, if that day is like, look, I'm the kind of person, I love going to an office. I love lots of responsibility. I love lots of pressure. I thrive in that environment. Well, then great. You know that that's where you want to For me, when I think about like the high-powered executive who's, who's, who, who an entire company is resting and falling on, I think how does that person have time to do any creative long-term thinking? I don't think that they do, and so I had to realize that oh, these two paths because I, I was on two paths. I was a, a writer and a researcher, and then also I had I was at a big company that they were mutually exclusive. That one was coming at the cost of the other, and I tried to do both for a long time. I, I at one point I stupidly uh, doubled down on the one that I didn't want, and I realized. It occurred to me one day, I was, I was actually in LA. Um, there, there was some chaos at American Apparel, and so I'd gotten called back in. They were paying me great money. And I, it was like, you know, 9 a.m. Uh, I'd just gone for a run. I'm sitting down, I was writing. And I looked at my watch and I was like, oh, I have to be at the office. Like, if, <laughs> if I'm not at the office, like, people are gonna be mad. They're gonna wonder what they're paying. Right. And, and it was like, but my dream is not going into an office. The most important thing for me is to have the freedom to go where my day takes me especially creatively. I'm on a path that's taking me further away from what I want my ideal day to look like. That's not success, you know? And so, uh, and Tim Ferriss has talked about this. It's, you know, Some people it's like, my um, dream life is being on a beach in Bali. Well, what does that actually cost? Could you have that now? Do you have to have a life that you don't like so that at the end of it, potentially you're lucky enough to go there? Or could you find a way to get that now? I'm trying to think about this on a regular basis is my life resembling what those days are supposed to look like? And if I have too many days in a row that don't resemble what I want my day to look like, I go, I'm I'm,
1: I'm having the opposite of success. You know what I mean? And what do you do very tactically in that moment? Is it journaling? What does that look like?
0: So I, I do journal uh, every morning and every night. So part of my journaling is just like a detailing of events, like not for history, but just so, I'm forced to recount what happened and actually think about it. You know, the Stoics would say, prepare for the day ahead, and then you're supposed to reflect on the day that just passed. And so that sort of process of preparing in the morning and reviewing in the evening allows me to never get too far from where I, I want to be. You know what I mean? Like, I'm yeah. never going to wake up five years from now, hopefully, five years from now, and go, this is just really not the life that I wanted because I'm, I'm doing an, a regular series of check-ins. Mm.
1: So going back to what you said about, you know for a brief moment, I actually doubled down on the thing that I didn't want, yeah. which I totally get yeah. and understand in a way that I can't even convey to you, why do you think people have a hard time identifying what they really want, and like what can people do to not find themselves in that situation?
0: This is a very first world problem, but I would say one of the hardest things to do in the world is to turn down money, right? So like I was in a conference room and someone said, you know, look, we need you to come back. Like we know you have this writing thing. This uh, is when you're quitting. Yeah. Or I'd already basically left. I was I was like sort of remote and and then, and, and didn't have a day-to-day role and they said, look, we, we need you to come back. You know, this is going to be a tough, you know, series of months, but I think you can make a contribution. We need you to come back. And I said, well, look, you know, I've got all this stuff and they they said. Well, what would it cost to get you to come back? And I threw out what I thought was a high number, and they said done. <laughs> and so, in that moment, I was like, "Well, that's a lot of money. It would it would be irresponsible to say no to this, right?" And so, I was telling myself one that I could do it all at the same time, and then two that like, you know, I I wanted this money, <laughs> like you know, and and it would it would seem dumb to say no to it. I do with lots of successful like entrepreneurs and and athletes, and one of the things they're always talking, they're like, "Oh, I just I love books, I love writing, I would love to be able to do that." Mm. And so one of the things that struck me in that period where I was unhappy was it was like, I get to do this thing that other people tell me they wish they could do, and here I am taking a bunch of money to do the thing that they say they don't like doing. You know, <laughs> this is this doesn't make any sense at all. And so I, I had to back myself out of that situation. I you know I left some money on the table as a result and it, was, it wasn't it was a fun experience, but it was, it was just, I think in that moment, I wasn't thinking, what do I want my life to look like? What's the most important thing to me? I was thinking, how many zeros are in this check, right? And that is not a great uh, way to make decisions in your life because what do people do with their money? They buy freedom, right? But oftentimes they give up freedom to get money, and so that, it was like, oh, I could just skip those steps and stay where I am and be very
1: happy. God, that's so interesting, man. So yes, I think that that's a, an eternal thing that people do, where they're they're work, they're giving up their freedom in order to buy some sort of future freedom, which yes. may or may not ever come. By the way, right? Because um, what if what if you do that and then you get hit by a bus? Yeah, or the money never comes. Sure, sure. which is maybe even more likely, right? That right. It just always slipping into the future, the eternal future. So my question is though, and there's there's two things really. So one, how did you deal with whatever the reverse of buyer's remorse is, right? Where you give the money back, and then that next time that you want to do something and realize I can't because I don't have the money, but oh, if I just stuck it out, and then yeah, we'll start there.
0: It's not like uh, I was choosing between you know the poorhouse and <laughs> you know paying for my groceries or something, right? Like this was this was extra. One of the Pivotal conversations in my life was with Tim Ferriss when I was starting my company. And he said, you know, Ryan, what do you do with your money? And um, I was like, what do you mean? He's like, what do you, what do you spend your money on? And I was like, nothing. Like I, just, <laughs> I, like, I just put it in a bank account and then I try to manage it responsibly. I live pretty reasonably and, and uh, I, I, I try to save my money and whatever. And so he's like, okay, so why are you going out and trying to get more and more if you don't need it? And and that was really helpful to me. So now uh, when I'm thinking about clients, uh, like what my test is at Brass Check is we go like, okay, is this work we're gonna be proud of or is this giving us money that we need to do something we will be proud of? That test is really, really important. A lot of times people are saying yes to money, not because, hey, if I do this, then I can pour it into the movie project that everything depends on. It's like, I need this so I can least a nicer car
1: right one one concept i'm assuming it comes from stoic philosophy and i can't remember if i read it in perennial seller or ego is the enemy or both perhaps but what would a person more humble than me learn from this moment yes. that's something i think it's incredibly powerful walk people through what that means what you're trying to get to and what the result is of approaching things like that
0: well i think there's this cool exercise uh from Adam Smith, who was the economist. Uh, he, he wrote The Wealth of Nations, but he also wrote a book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which is this sort of brilliant book about philosophy and kind of like why we do the, the right thing, basically. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he, he was talking about is he was like, you should judge all your actions. He should, you should subject it, he said, to the indifferent spectator test, which is like, what if there was a, a totally impartial person who you didn't know who's just standing there watching you, what would they think of this? You know, what, How would they judge what's happening? And that's a way to sort of step out from your own logic, your own impulses, your own natural feelings, and sort of judge, You know, if you're not religious, you're not like, what would Jesus do? You're like, what would some random guy think of this? And if, if it doesn't pass his test, it's probably not a good thing to do, right? And so I think that's, that's the test I go is like, what would a person who isn't so caught up in this, who, whose identity isn't on the line, how would they react to this rude remark? Or how would they react to this lowball offer? They would not be nearly so caught up in it. It wouldn't threaten them the way that I'm feeling that right now. So I'm going to borrow a little bit of their objectivity, and I'm going to try to I'm going to incorporate it into my reaction here. In the way that therapy is about questioning our thoughts, philosophy is giving us the tools to in the heat of the moment. You know, Viktor Frankl would talk about how, you know, there's this between stimulus and response, there's like a a moment and that's where we get to choose who we're going to be. And I think philosophy is about that moment.
1: There's a difference between just sort of rushing headlong and doing something recklessly, Versus being brave. Walk us through because you're, for people that haven't yet read it, one of the interesting things is you really address it from like every conceivable angle. Like, here is courage in a balanced way. Here is courage when it becomes reckless. Here is like hiding from courage. And that one I thought was really interesting.
0: What's funny because I'm now in the middle of writing the temperance book and I don't know. When I'm writing, I'm always tweaking like up till the end. And so there may be stuff that I've moved uh, before it went to (laughs) to final print that I don't remember exactly. But I'm thinking about this a lot now because actually for the virtue of moderation, Aristotle uses courage as the example. He he says there's a golden mean. So he says that think of a spectrum and on one end of the spectrum, you have cowardice. You might think that on the other end of the spectrum is courage. Actually, no. Courage is in the middle between cowardice and recklessness. And so when we talk about boldness. It's crazy
1: to think these guys lived thousands of years ago. I mean, this, yes. th- that's some insightful shit.
0: But, and not only is he talking about that in theory, he's also the philosophy instructor of Alexander the Great, <laughs> who is like having to think about that in a very real way. Right. So when we think of philosophy, sometimes we think of these like caricatures of our university professors or something like people who had no experience in Mm -hmm. real life. I mean, he's talking about courage, like as he's tutoring one of the bravest, most brilliant, strategically bold military commanders to ever walk the earth. Um, But I think that's a really important way of thinking about it, because courage is not just doing whatever you want, taking any risk. In fact, there's a, a great Spartan story about uh, this one Spartan in like the heat of battle. He rips off his armor. and He defeats all these guys like one-on-one. It's like the bravest thing that anyone had ever seen. But the, the Spartan elders, when he gets back from battle, instead of like throwing him a parade, they fine him. They fine him for uh, endangering uh, an important Spartan asset himself right <laughs> and so i love that right so uh and actually I, as i was researching the book i talked to a friend of mine who is a, an instructor at the naval academy and he was saying he's like you know jumping on a grenade is not brave unless you're doing it to protect someone else right so it's like if you just jump on the grenade because you're like a grenade like and you're just instinctually brave you're actually being reckless which is a vice right you've you've just killed yourself for zero return on that investment. Now, if you jump on the grenade and it protects a room full of innocent people, that's an incredibly, that's not just courageous, that's heroic, it's selfless. But if you just do it, it's selfish uh, if if the only person it affects is you. So um, when we think about uh, boldness, you know, there's this expression, fortune favors the bold. When we think about boldness, It's within, again, those limitations of the other virtues. Uh, If the fight doesn't need to happen, it's not courageous to start it. Um, If uh, you don't need to go all in on this hand, uh, going all in on it is not courageous, it's stupid and reckless. Um, And so deciding what battles need to be fought, what risks need to be taken, Uh, how risk can be taken off the table if it's not necessary. This is an important part of of courage. It's not just, I don't feel fear. If you don't feel fear, you are not thinking.
1: Yeah, it was interesting reading the book. I was like, it's so inspiring and it makes you want to be a better person, which is like the (laughs) highest praise I can give a book. Uh, And one of the notes that I took was, sometimes though, being lacking courage or being reckless, it's not clear which is which. Like, It's not clear like, wait, if I do this, am I being uh, wise because to push forward would be reckless? Or am I not doing this because I'm afraid and not doing this is cowardice? And I was like, sometimes a lack of courage is just straight confusion. Well, there's a
0: story about Theodore Roosevelt. It's not in the book, but I was reading it when I was researching the book. Basically, there's some sort of interparty split over like corruption or something early on in his career. And a bunch of his friends all leave the Republican Party in disgust, a- anger over it. And this is so far distant that there's no connection to what Republicans or Democrats right. are today. So let's put politics aside. But basically, they all leave. And Theodore Roosevelt stays. Now, is this cowardice? Or is it courageous because he wouldn't have been able to become the Republican president like 10 or 15 years later had he left in a huff. Right. And another good example of this is like, what if uh, your job uh, is asking you to do something unethical or morally uh, frustrating or you're just not cool with it? but by storming out in disgust or whatever, you are then leaving your family destitute. Mm-hmm. I had um, Alexander Vindman on my podcast a few uh, weeks ago. He's the um, the whistleblower who got Trump impeached. Again, put politics aside. But he uh, sees something, he says something, and I talked to him about it. And I said, like, you know, were you worried about like how do I pay for my? daughter's college education and he said these are kind of the things that you think about right we often self-deter we go well uh i don't want to do it because it would be irresponsible for the following reason so it it, there i don't want to make it seem like it's clear-cut because it's not it's fucking really hard and it's not like a hell yes hell no thing like you just know and it's it's often very morally ambiguous it's very morally ambiguous and challenging. And if you're not torn about it, it's probably uh, probably not super high-stakes situation. Mm. Um, but there's a moment I do talk about in the book where Theodore Roosevelt, uh, and I, this is a good test that I like, Theodore Roosevelt is considering asking Booker T. Washington to have dinner with him at the White House, the first African-American to be invited to dine at the White House as a guest of the president. Now, it's not fair to say he's the first African-American to eat at the White House. Plenty of them had to eat at the White House. They were just never allowed to be guests of honor. So this Mm -hmm. is a a major political statement uh, in the early 1900s. And Theodore Roosevelt is considering doing it. And then he thinks about why no one has done it before him, which is the Southern states won't like it. His Southern relatives won't like it. The newspapers will make it a thing. It could cost him a close election. And then he says uh, in a letter to a friend, he was like, precisely because I hesitated, I felt disgust with myself and I knew that I had to do it. So often I find that the thing you're hesitating on doing, the considerations are usually very helpful in, in reminding you of what actually matters. But if you're not thinking about this, and you're just plunging ahead you know you're probably also going to charge off a cliff from Mm. some point
1: yeah man this stuff gets so interesting and to your point about alexander the great like i mean and, and even just backing it off just that it will play out in your life whether it's something big or small philosophy really is about a life well lived and in the book i can't remember if it's you that said it or you're quoting somebody else we all know there's something worse than death and when you create that haddock for yourself and you have the fence of, you know, what my virtues are and how I'm going to behave, you know, like what things you would actually be prepared to die for, where your sort of line of recklessness is. And you fucking better define that before you find yourself in that situation. And in the book, you give an example where I'm like, oh, I don't know if that was reckless or if mm-hmm. I'm like really inspired. And the example is the guy in the senate in ancient Rome and he is he's expressly told if you speak against me it's not going to end well for you yeah he does it anyway and I'll I'll leave you to fill in the the gaps in the story so i think he,
0: are you saying that you think i was saying he was reckless
1: i'm saying i don't know if oh. i'm i'm blown away that he had the balls to say what he thought was true cuz for him to lie cuz he tells the guy just don't ask if you don't ask, I won't say anything, but if you ask, I'm gonna tell the truth. Right. And I was like, I'm impressed, and at the same time, like, if you know people get killed for this shit, I don't know what I would've done in that situation.
0: Yeah, so this is, uh, the senator is named Hilvidius, and I actually talk about it in my book, Lives of the Stoics, too, but he's one of the, the Stoic uh, senators in, in uh, the sort of middle Roman period, and, and Rome has had this series of really bad, corrupt, awful emperors. And they're in the middle of another one. And, you know, the job of the Senate was sort of to advise and consult as it is now. Um, and a lot of people take that to mean, don't tell the boss what he doesn't want to hear, right? Don't, uh, you know, the nail that stands up gets hammered down. Don't say anything controversial, just wait this out. Uh, and then hopefully things will get better. And he basically says, I'm not gonna do that. Like. Uh, my job is to do uh, is to say what I think is true, and if if uh, you know, I'm not going to go around screaming uh, and and sort of being reckless. But like, if you ask me a question, I'm going to give you the answer uh, that uh, that I think is true. And he's willing to die over that principle, um, which is I think uh, incredible. Um, and and again, is that to say that you should die over every you know little thing? No, but I think it is to say what are you willing to risk for the principles that you have? I remember a, a friend of mine is is a senator, and I remember uh, he uh, I won't because it'll get controversial. Get into it, but he'd taken some you know political stand, and I emailed him and I said congratulations, like it's really impressive, and then I said I said you know. What is the point of having six years of guaranteed job security if you're not going to use it to say what you think is true if you're not going to vote according to what you think is right? But it is really interesting. Like You see academics with tenure, lifelong employment guarantees. You see senators or uh, congressmen. You and I don't have two. We, we always are sympathetic to congressmen because, and, and women because you know, they're, they're always up for re-election. I mean, you and I don't have two years of guaranteed job security. Very few people do. So I'm actually not sympathetic to that at all. Like, you have two years or six years of guaranteed job security, and you're not going to do what you think is right because you might lose your job over it. I mean, your job is to do what you think is right. What did you get into politics for uh, if not to do that? This isn't like, uh, this isn't, this is a, 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 profession of service right and so I, I do think these these situations can be seen from different angles but i think generally um the idea of like i'm gonna do my job come what may uh solzhenitsyn has a line he says let evil enter the world but not through me
1: fuck and uh, dude he blows me away that fucking guy like I, obviously you've read um mm-hmm. the gulag archipelago Who? Oh. Wow. Like would you be willing to go to the
0: gulag for what you believe? You Here, know, that's 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 a real
1: Would you? Would Ryan Holiday I go to the gulag? It depends
0: on what it is, right? That that's the that's the question. But I remember you and I we talked like a year ago and we were talking about something that was like politically charged or controversial, and you said something that stuck with me that I've thought about since. You said, you know, um I I thought what I thought, and then I found myself not saying it. Because I knew people would be upset by it, mm. and then I realized that uh, to not say what I think is true for business reasons is uh, not a good way to live. It made me feel like a coward. Yeah, and and I think that's um, I think that's a really good test because you know you watch people accumulate power or influence or a platform. And then, what do they use it for? They use it for the perpetuation and expansion of those same things. I, I'll get emails from people. I'll say something that's political or whatever, and they'll, "Why did you do this? You had to know you would, you know, piss people off." And go, "What do you think I built this platform for? Like, I didn't write these books and build this email list and this YouTube following and this Instagram following and whatever to then censor myself to not." lose those people. I mean, the whole point of having it is to use it to say what I think is true. That is the job, right? The job of a writer or an artist or a thought leader, whatever you want to call it, is to explore and articulate what they think is true and believe to be important. So if you don't do that, because you see the numbers and the numbers tell you that it drives unsubscribes or unfollows or angry comments, you're not just being a coward, but you're betraying the whole reason for doing it. Like there's a, there's a exchange with Lyndon Johnson as he's, uh, pushing through civil rights, which a whole bunch of other people were much more fervently in favor of than he i mean he's a southern senator he'd done basically nothing on civil rights most of his career um, but what johnson knew was how to get stuff done right johnson knew how to get stuff done so after the assassination of kennedy he decides like in uh, memory of Kennedy, he's going to ram this thing through. And he thinks he can do it. And I think he does come to earnestly believe in the ideas, even though he'd been very slow to adopt them and perfectly fine to, you know, experience the benefits of segregated society for most of his life. But some aide comes to him and says, you know, this is going to be politically disastrous. You're going to, are you sure you want to do this? Blah, blah, blah. And he says, what the, he says, oh, what the hell is the presidency for? Right? Like if the, you, you work your whole life, as he did, successive offices, offices, offices. You slave away in obscurity. You finally get to wield the levers of power. And it's really important that people realize this. When you get that, when the the, the game is in your hands, like when you're in control, your impulse is not now, I'm going to really do things my way. Because if they were, you probably wouldn't have gotten to that point, you would have done this earlier, right? So the impulse is not, now that I have power, I'm going to use it to do the things that I believe in. That that would be the courageous thing. The, the This is where the cowardice comes in. And you go, ah, but you'll lose the midterms, right? You'll not get reelected. Your donors will be upset. The newspapers will criticize you. And I think that's what Theodore Roosevelt was saying too about inviting Booker G. Washington. He's like, what the, what fucking good is it to be the president of the United States of America if I can't invite who I want to invite to dinner, right? Not only is that morally repugnant, it's, it's pointless, right? But this is where we get people. You, you watch you know, powerful people in all different facets of life not say or do what they think is right, and I've been guilty of it in my own life. I'm sure you have too, because you have your considerations,
1: Yes. And there's a couple things in there. So one, the Theodore Roosevelt thing, I find really interesting because of that, like you listen to that gut instinct, right? It's the same, obviously, on a much smaller scale, but it's the same feeling that I had of no one in the outside world knew that I was starting to feel like a coward. Right but I knew and I didn't wanna feel that way. And that very thing, cause I'm always trying to get people to understand the whole purpose of life is to feel good about yourself when you're by yourself. Yes. And so whether the outside world thinks you're amazing, if you're at home contemplating suicide, you have fuck all. Like yeah. you have absolutely nothing. And if the whole world thinks you're an asshole, but you really believe to the core of your being that you stood up for the right thing, you're still gonna feel good. It doesn't mean that you're not gonna face hardships. It doesn't mean you're not gonna sure. wonder how am I gonna pay for my kid's college. But man, you have something that's really, really powerful and learning to listen to that, to translate the feeling into an idea that you can articulate, I think is very important and something a lot of people never take the time to do. And so they don't understand their own emotions. I think that's really powerful. And then, you know, just getting to the point where you recognize the complexity of things. So, for instance, with um, you and I might be in slightly different positions maybe it'll be interesting to say okay. this out loud and see how you think about it so i'm not a writer and the only reason that i stepped in front of the camera was one i wanted to impact people's lives positively obviously impact theory. Uh, and then two i want to build the next disney so i want to build a brand that is bigger than me when we started sure. we were like what do we call this thing everybody was like bill studios all day long the show should be called the tom bill show and right. i was like fuck that no one is going to tattoo tom bill on themselves other than my wife who strangely wants to and i absolutely refuse uh but i knew that they could feel a sense of ownership over impact theory so all of that to say i can damage my own brand sure by saying things to not feel like a coward So now I'm in this like sort of doubly complex thing of I'm only in front of the camera to positively impact people's lives. The more that I can be almost transparent in that interaction and just give them something that they can own that will, you know, give them the ideas. They need the ideas. They don't need me. And so I'm like, God, like, am I just going to trip myself up by going up? But because I know that all of this is for naught, if I don't feel good about who I am, if I don't feel that I've contributed in a meaningful way, if I don't feel that I've done something honorable is probably the word I would use with my life. And so that feeling, that's why, you know, one of the big questions I had reading your book is how much of this is just inescapable that we're all like, if you fail to be courageous, you will suffer no matter what the world thinks. They could all be like, maybe they, you get celebrated for Being the biggest hero in the world, but inside, you know, it wasn't you like the Don Draper effect. If you watch Mad Men where he like took a hero's identity. And so people are constantly like, you know, thank you for your service. And he knows that he was a total coward. And uh, just like that's so gnarly. And I just cannot when this is
0: this is where that stoic idea of sometimes it's like, hey, are you speaking up about current events or it's like, hey, suddenly, you know, you've witnessed some calamity and you're the only person who can speak up about it right so there's a certain amount of sort of randomness to it they call this a uh, moral luck right like were you of age born in this country when uh, they were deciding who was going to land at normandy right. you and i were not so that wasn't an opportunity for us to be courageous and uh you know or were you there when the police were brutalizing someone and you had the courage to take out your camera and film it, despite their threatening, you know, to arrest you if you continued. or what. So there's a certain amount of luck. Um, and if you want to call it luck in the kind of destiny that that is chosen for us. But then there's also the sort of little moments of like, are you living up to what you believe in? Are you uh, using the assets that you have to be the person that you know you want to be? And I think it is important, right? Like. What good is success if you have to censor yourself, right? So you you have the next Disney, but you knew you had to compromise on all the things that were important to you Mm. to get there.
1: What good is that? Victory.
0: Yeah, Um, the Bible talks about the the man who uh, gaineth the whole world but loses his soul, right? And I think that's sadly very common. Mm. Um, And I think this is particularly common in politics, in business. Uh, in the creative fields where to make your way up through the system, you have to show that you're not a threat,
1: right? Have to show you're not a threat.
0: Yeah. So, um, okay. In the beginning of the pandemic, there was a captain, uh, I think I'm forgetting his first name, but it's Captain Crozier. He's like the head of the USS Theodore Roosevelt. Um, and uh, it pulls into New York Harbor, there's a COVID outbreak on the ship, and he doesn't feel like people are taking it seriously, that the people inside the Navy are taking it seriously. And so he has uh, a moral, and he has a moral quandary. Do I continue to, do I just follow my orders and let the people I'm entrusted with leading suffer as a result, or do I take more desperate measures that will involve repercussions for me professionally and speak up about it. Uh, And he speaks up about it. I think he he CCs a reporter, I forget the specifics, but he ends up basically losing uh, his job as the job he wanted his whole life to be the captain of an aircraft carrier. uh, And he loses his job over what he believed was the right thing. But I think it's important to zoom back and go, you don't, like people are like, oh, this was reckless, let's say, or something. you don't become the captain of an aircraft carrier if you're not a pretty good rule follower, right? Like uh, think of all the years he had to spend in the Navy Mm -hmm. following uh, the rules, uh, putting in his time, not being disruptive, not being, like for the entrepreneurs have a different career trajectory than most, almost any other profession, right? Where like you're an outsider who starts their own thing. So from the beginning, there was courage. But what about like Tim Cook, right? People are like Tim Cook's not as courageous and groundbreaking as Steve Jobs. Well, if he was, do you think he would have lasted very long at <laughs> I see Apple? What you're saying, no. Like they, they, they that doesn't work. So there's different, different career paths for different people. But the question is, when you find yourself in that situation, do you do the courageous thing or the cowardly thing? When it really matters, right? Um, and I think the sad truth is a lot, a lot of times we don't.